This is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform, and we have a special uh, episode here of the podcast. First of all, we have all of our lifetime clients, which is always fun to have uh, a conversation. We've actually been having a conversation for the last 20 to 25 minutes on on bodybuilding and, and the motivations behind it and things of that nature, which was actually quite interesting, but I'm not sure it, <laughs> it would have made for a great podcast. Uh, so with us also is Dr. Susan Kleiner. Today is gonna be mostly a, a Q&A session, though I do have some ideas that uh, I wanted to mull over with Susan today. And then, uh, Susan, why don't you walk people through how they can find you, mostly the content that you, you have out there in the world and things of that nature. Thanks, Paul. Hello, everybody out there. Um, so I'm Dr. Susan Kleiner. I'm a high-performance nutritionist and I am a sports dietitian. I'm uh, the owner of High Performance Nutrition. You can find me at www.drskleiner.com. I'm the author of The New Power Eating of the Good Mood Diet, uh, co-author of some other books out there and, and, and a whole slew of, of older books. And you can find those on my website. You can find those at your um, favorite uh, bookstore. You can also find me on social media on uh, Instagram at, uh, at Power Eat and Twitter at Power Eat although I'm not on Twitter very much. And um, Facebook is Dr. Susan Kleiner. Gotcha. And I'm Paul Nobles. I'll keep mine short. Um, the, uh, I am the owner and founder of Eat to Perform. And if you are looking to um, join Eat to Perform, you can simply go to www.eatperform.com. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about was was kind of how lifetime ended up happening. So so everybody on this call, I mean, they might be paying some now, but but once their subscription or or payment ends, they don't pay any more subscription, and then they have access to each form forever. That was not a business strategy. That was a a company mission is that we wanted to be able to, to help people forever. And in that discussion with Susan, she mentioned that she also does something very similar. And the reason why that is important to us is because most of the diet industry is kind of surrounded around people failing and then not, not ultimately providing them enough. Like as an example, you know, there's no company that exists in the world right now that doesn't know that calories in a deficit are supposed to stay there all the time. You know, if, I mean, it's possible that they do uh, think that, right? But it's just, there's just so much other information out there that the only thing, the only way you would stick with that model is if you have strong confirmation bias, right? And so I've always wondered why mainstream client, mainstream dieting doesn't do more coaching around maintenance and performance because it's, it's so prevalent in the scientific literature, right? But there was another piece that we didn't mention. And that piece is that we sell a month-to-month -month membership, right? 
And that was also a, a mission and strategy for the company because when, and, and we haven't always sold this and I'm not saying that we'll never sell like a three month bundle or something of this nature. Um, but in general, we try to stick away, uh, uh, we try to stick with that plan. And the reason why we stick with that plan is because you have to be good with that model, right? You can't, you can't fake it when, when you have that model because people can cancel on you within a month. And so I always felt like if I was selling a six month model, yes, from the business perspective, that puts less pressure on me, right? But from a standpoint of success, you know, the better model is to kind of teach people that, hey, this is really a long-term journey. You know, we're going to show you that we know what we're talking about and we're going to be able to prove that to you. And then you can go into the group for the last 10 years and see all the success that people had in all shapes and sizes, right? And uh, doesn't mean that everybody's abbed up, but it does mean that we've been able to change people's relationship with food, which is what I, I think the two biggest things in terms of dieting, which, you know, it's interesting because like Susan doesn't even kind of play in the diet world at all, right? But the two biggest things in terms of dieting to me, right, um, one is mental, you know, and, and is your program set up so that people can mentally succeed? Doesn't mean that you never eat less or things of this nature, um, but it does mean that we're viewing food as an ally. The other, and I believe this is, this is the most important thing related to dieting and success dieting, um, is diet adherence. And so if we're looking at diet adherence, we have to then create the habits and timeframes that people can succeed and then move back to normal with calories, right? And so, so we're really the only diet program out there that every single day talks about, you know, um, what it takes for diet adherence to work, right? And people go, well, why don't you talk more about deficits well pretty much because everybody else is covering that part right so i don't i don't need to cover how important a deficit is because every other diet company is telling you about that right and so that's baked in you know so we have some articles about that but to me the bigger challenge is when food comes back right and where you know how can we push that to the point where you might even be a little uncomfortable at that point, right? Because if you come from a background where you've been eating 1,100, 1,200 calories, and then you kind of go off and kind of do an intuitive thing every now and again, but, but maybe even when you're eating intuitive, you're only eating 1,400. In our discussion with bodybuilding, this was the one thing that, that I didn't get to mention, um, is that there are a lot of pro- you know, um, uh, allies to bodybuilding, right. That, um, will often coach people on maintenance or talk about maintenance and things of this nature. And then the lowest calories are 1100 and maintenance calories at 1400. And we, we know, they know, everybody knows 1400 is not maintenance. And so that's where I think some of this stuff gets a little bit tricky, but I just wanted to throw that out because I think there's a pro probably a lot of people that 
our lifetime customers of Eaton Forum that don't even know that there is a serious mission behind all of this other than the stuff that we, we talk about daily. So let's just jump right into the Q&A. And then if we have some time at the end of the Q&A, we will then um, uh, work through some of those ideas because I think uh, some of those discussions can be fun. So Carolyn. Okay, so Amy is asking, hi, I'm in PR eating between 2000 to 2400 calories per day. To meet my carbs, I've been eating lots of dried fruits, apricots, apples, pears, as well as lots of frosted mini wheats. At my last checkup, my A1C jumped from five where it has been the last several years to 7.3. No history of diabetes in my family and I'm not drinking lots of sugary drinks or eating lots of sweets. Could this be related to the amount of and type of carbs I'm eating? I'm within normal BMI if that is helpful. Great question. My, my first question is what is PR? So PR is performance slash recomp, okay, right? Great. So uh, yes, it is. It, there's there's a combination of things probably happening. Uh, you are. It's not the amount of carbs you're eating, but you are getting in a lot of sugar, even though it's from whole foods, dried fruits, apricots, apples, and pears are highly concentrated sources of of sugars, uh, as is you know the the frosted mini wheats well the the whole grain on there is great but there's sugar on them uh, added in the frosting so if you were a, a very highly active individual someone who's you know sort of training once or twice a day doing high intensity exercise you would be consuming these sugars and burning them off as, as you went. They would be the fuel for your exercise in many cases. However, if that's not your lifestyle, if you are not um, exercising at a, at a high level, then these sugars are increasing your blood sugar. And if you are stretching them out throughout the day, your blood sugar is going up. It doesn't mean that it's not coming down, but what hemoglobin A1C tracks is, is, is blood sugar elevation over time. And so it's seeing that your blood sugar levels are, are going up higher than what you are utilizing or burning off. And so they're staying high and it takes time for that to come down. You get your insulin response. And then I'm sure your, your blood glucose levels may be normal upon fasting, but this is showing you that you're eating a lot of sugar basically. And so my recommendation is not to decrease your carb consumption, because you're within your caloric range, you know what your macro targets are. Eat more um, whole grains <laughs> to start with, that's always my go-to. And, um, and making sure that even if you're eating fruit, it's not all dried fruit, but that it's, it's more from a whole food so that you get full from um, a, a lesser 
quantity of sugar, basically, because there's fiber and fluid and all the other nutrients, more nutrient dense foods. So again, um, adding, having at least three whole grain servings a day, uh, and then you could have at 2,400 calories, you could probably have four or five whole grain servings a day. And this doesn't have to be bread and pasta. In fact, it would be better for you to be cooking whole grains um, so that you start to get away from, even though we don't think of bread as ultra processed, it's not, but it is processed. Same with noodles, they're processed. And so your body is asking you to get, to, to eat more truly whole foods with lower sugar content. So there, there's another thing, this, you know, in my early days of, of kind of sorting a lot of this stuff out, um, I got the same advice that Susan just gave you. Um, but there was another thing that the person mentioned, I, I believe it was Mike Nelson, who's a mutual friend of Susan and I. And um, dried fruit almost always has added sugar, right? Because it's usually not... Um, it's not flavorful enough. So, you know, I'd say probably eight times out of 10, I think like apricots and stuff like that won't have, won't have extra. The other thing in, in, in involved in what Susan said, and when, you know, I'm now defaulting more to, to whole grains also, but really the most efficient source that goes to brain and muscle is going to be starches, right? And so if you can really focus on, you know, rice, if you can focus on uh, potatoes, these things are all going to be, be great. Any root vegetable is going to be, going to be typically very good for you there. I think one of the things that happens, you know, with having the ability to eat 2,400, like as an example, um, there was someone in the group that talked about the fact that, you know, they could eat candy. Um, and I remember one time with my, my wife, um, she was, she was talking about how good and plenties were so great because, you know, she could get, she could meet her carbs that way. And, and I was like, <laughs> well, that's not really that useful. Um, and, uh, and then the worst part about good and plenty's is that, you know, not only is it, is it sugar, but you can get a lot of it, right? <laughs> like bang for buck, you know, good and plenty's is like a good dessert because you can get a lot of it, you know. Not to mention but, tooth decay. Yeah, but, but I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think what happens is that as you start to add in some flexibility and some of the things that, that um, you know, are, are, are good to have, right? From a standpoint of joy and, and things of this nature, it does creep into, um, you know, good habit, you know, like, so we get a lot of good habits established when we're in like a, a fat loss cycle, right? And then we start to sort of lose those, right? And rather than being like 10% or 5% of foods that we're enjoying, or that are on maybe kind of most other places naughty list, you know, that becomes 20, 25, 30%. And that's really not the goal here. 
the problem that people have in that scenario, and I think Susan would attest to this, especially with whole grains, right? So you're making whole grains, you're try, trying to get your macros in and your calories are 2,400. You're gonna be eating a lot, you know, when you're having whole foods at 2,400. And so you kind of have to plan for that. And then part of the reasons why people default to dried fruit, sugary cereal, uh, all these other things is similar to what my wife said, right? Where I'm trying to just get in my carbs, but carbs that don't actually provide your muscle and brain with fuels. I mean, you know, sugar will provide a little bit of, of you know, it's one of the reasons why we enjoy it um, is because it's kind of this big hit of, of energy all at once right? You really want it to be slow. That's one of the reasons why whole grains are so important is because the fiber in the whole grain blunts the uptake, right? So you're not getting like this huge rush of sugar and then this huge change in, you know, hunger signaling and that things of that nature. So hopefully that's helpful as an addition to what Susan said. Okay. Allison is asking, um, she's going into PR for the first time and want to get the most out of it. Currently lifting two times a week. Agreed with coach on this cadence because um, she plays a lot of pickleball other days. And now that it's finally snowing, we'll be skiing as well. So wanted a gym cadence that I can adhere to. The question is, is two times a week in the gym enough to see results in PR? Since I'm new to PR, just a little nervous about pacing my activity to get the most out of it. If it helps, she's 51 and perimenopausal. So um, I think you've just given the answer in your question. You know, you, you, you want to be able to do all these other things in your life that give you joy and are also physically active. And so if being in the gym two days a week is the lifestyle that makes you feel good, then that's the best thing for you to do. If, if some of your data points don't move quite at the rate if someone else was in the gym three times a week or four times a week, and they would have, you know, they'd be lifting uh, a little heavier, a little faster, so what? This is your sustainable, enjoyable lifestyle. And um, I, kudos to you for what an active person you are. And, and there's nothing better than variety in exercise. And so I talk about variety as one of the absolute foundational keys to a healthy diet. It's also one of the foundational keys to a healthy body. And the variety of exercise and some things that are sports specific and some things that are foundational to body strength and power is, is the best of all worlds. So two times a week, and, and in fact, there are data that show that, that you can get very good results being in the gym twice a week lifting. Um, it doesn't matter if it compares to three times a week or four times a week, that's not what you wanna do. Does two times a week get you results? Yes, it may take a little longer, but so what? Again, as I said, you're on a journey here. This is a lifetime process and you are doing all the things that are good and healthy for you. And believe me, at your age, that you couldn't be doing anything better. 
So I do have a follow-up question to Allison. Um, one, are we talking about abs or are we talking about um, as calories are going up, being able to maintain your weight, right? Because those are probably two differences. And so, so what I want you to do, of course, if you could get abs doing what you're doing, and like Susan's saying, it's certainly possible. Um, I would argue that maybe there might be some adjustments. The problem is, is that are those adjustments things you like? Because doing things you don't like for a specific result often doesn't end up going in the direction that you want to go. But I suspect that it's the second part that's actually more important to you. Is that enough activity, right? Is that enough weightlifting, as an example, to get a result? Uh, so, so as you said, if you have a very specific goal, if, if your goal is to get, uh, you know, six pack abs, um, I would argue that, um, I'm not sure, you know, that, that, that's got a lot of, um, nuance to it that isn't only, uh, connected to how much you train, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. she answered the question. Oh, she it, it's, it, it, it's not about abs. It's okay. about maintaining weight. So this is something, this is the one thing that I know way better than Susan. <laughs> um, the pickleball burns so many calories, right? And it allows you to eat so much more flexibly. And so this would be really similar to someone that trains marathon or ultra marathon or something of this well, nature. And skiing to that too. Yeah. Oh, see, I mean, skiing is one of those activities that it works so many muscles so differently. I don't know about you guys, but if I come off the slopes, I am starving to a level that <laughs> nothing else does. Um, pickleball comes close, right? Um, so she's also saying abs are made in the kitchen, right? And that I would not necessarily argue, argue that. I would say abdominal muscles are muscles, right? So I have a friend of mine named James Townsend, he, and he went to the University of Iowa. He played for the Chicago Bears. I don't think anyone on the planet has more impressive abs than this guy. And um, I was doing a, I was doing a uh, presentation at a conference that um, he was at, and uh, during lunch, you know, we went and got got lunch together, and he said, "Hey, man, would you mind if we went to McDonald's?" And uh, that's not very common, you know. But this is a guy that needs, you know, seven eight thousand calories for the way that he works out. So I mean, if he's going to try and, you know, steak and potato that, you know, it's going to get really really tough really really quickly. And so um, abs, yes, you know, in terms of, of, of trying to uncover the abs, there is a component of eating less on occasion. But the bigger component is the building the muscle in the first place. And the problem with most folks is they get scared before they get to that place because what happens you know, as your muscles become more hydrated, as they become more useful, you're doing more work over time, you know, what ends up happening in that scenario is it triggers fears, even though when, when you look in the mirror, the mirror looks good, but you see like 
still a layer of fat, right? So as your muscles become more pronounced, right, it will sometimes make your fat layer also a little bit right. more it pronounced. Pops out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so so that becomes uncomfortable for some people. And so let's say that, you know, you've been in performance for three to four months, and now all of a sudden you're building some significant muscle because you've never fueled your, your workouts in that way. Now it's going to trigger some uncomfortability, right? And you have to, you have to make peace with that, right? What your real goals are, you know, but I will say, you know, if you continue with pickleball and you continue doing the two to three pickleball burns 12 to 1500. I mean, I have a friend of mine that I was just talking to yesterday um, who lost 85 pounds and he lost 30 pounds at first and then he started playing pickleball. Now he was in a deficit and I'm talking to him about how smart that is all the time, right? But he plays sometimes up to eight hours a day. And in those eight hours, he burns upwards of 2,500 calories, right? So people don't think of pickleball as this particularly strenuous sport, but you're on your feet for three hours at a time. And then, you know, you're, you've got a lot of endurance things that would be similar to, you know, you know, training for marathons and things of that nature. Right. I mean, I don't know how quickly can someone run, you know, 10 miles, right. Probably in about an hour where you're on the court for three hours, you know, so you've actually gotten to the point where you probably have kind of a long endurance thing sort of baked in and that's going to serve you really well and as your calories start to go up and as you in in those sessions i can't tell you how many sessions where i end and i'm like i i just need to eat you know and at that point you know you know i'll break all the rules right because you know what i don't want to do is be hungry go to bed hungry and then wake up at two o'clock in the morning. I'm gonna listen to my body and my body's saying that it was particularly strenuous for that day. There's a lot of reasons. I mean, it would take like three podcasts to get into that, but I'll just give you like the short version. If it's like your third day and your whoop or your, your, your Apple watch is telling you, you probably should have rested, but you didn't. You know, a lot of the time on that third day, you know, you will see hunger differently than you did on the first day with a similar workout. So you have to be kind of in tune. And that's where I think a lot of the new data is, is showing us things that we just really had no idea previous to that. Okay, we have a question from a client who's in PR. Uh, my main question is this, is timing of when you eat of significance when you are trying to build lean muscle? My Marine son came to visit and he would eat some protein before workout and protein powder after lifting. Does this really impact our bodies that much? So that's a, you know, a wonderful question and it's a demonstration of how science moves forward. So for, I'd say about a decade, maybe 15 years, we had research that showed us that there was a window of opportunity post-workout where we called it the anabolic window, meaning that you would get muscle tissue growth and, um, and refueling, so refueling and growth 
um, at a faster rate immediately after exercise for about you know, one to two hours. And then that window didn't close shut, but the rate of uptake of nutrients would start to slow over the next 24 hours. What we've learned since, and this is starting post-workout, um, what we've learned is that that does matter for refueling. So that if he does a hard workout and he uses up his carbohydrate stores, we call it glycogen stores, carbohydrate in the muscle is glycogen chemically, um, those stores reduce, they're used up during his muscle building workout or whatever workout he's doing. If he uses those up, it never goes to zero, but if they lower considerably, if he then wants to work out again later in the day, or maybe even early the next day on a full tank, that getting carbohydrate immediately after exercise within that hour to an hour and a half or so does replenish muscle glycogen levels faster than if he just then normally eats the carbs he needs over the next 24 hours. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't be back to sort of full tilt by the end of the day for a, a, a number two workout. And perhaps he may not have even top, topped off his tanks if he did an early morning workout the next day, if his carb intake was not that high. So, so carbohydrate matters. Protein, on the other hand, which is the tissue building side. Now you have to be able to do the work and fuel the work to build the tissue, right? So, so they do somewhat go hand in hand, but protein, as long as we have adequate protein intake throughout the day in packages, you know, you know, maybe for your son, maybe at least 30 grams of protein every time he, he eats, maybe, you know, five times, six times a day throughout the day, depending on how big he is. Um, he doesn't need to worry about protein immediately after exercise. Now, having said that, the fact is that immediately after exercise is a good opportunity to replace your protein and your carb when you're trying to get in enough protein and it's a high amount of protein and it's hard to get it in throughout the day anyway. You're busy. He's a Marine. He's not like grazing all day long. He's got very specific times that he can actually stop and eat. So practically speaking, it's still for, for certainly people like your son, it is a very good strategy. And even, I mean, my clients, even the women that I work with, because, because grazing isn't part of their lifestyle, they, they eat at specific times throughout the day. This is a good time to get in a good slug of protein with your carbohydrate. And they do work together. They do work hand in hand. Protein and carb together does give you an anabolic response. Um, it's just that you already have protein in you if you're eating protein all day long. So, so that's the story there. And it probably is smart for him to be, to be taking in protein, but I would say he should add carbohydrate. It sounds like he's not. And that really is the key immediately after exercise to refueling. Um, as far as pre-exercise, this is again, this is very subject to 
what has he been eating all day long before his workout? What are his glycogen levels? How long are his workouts? Protein, we're seeing that protein without carb, as long as you've got carbohydrate levels elevated in your muscles already. Protein, which is, I'm assuming he's using whey protein, that whey protein raises his blood glucose levels. And many people don't know that, but whey protein does raise your blood sugar levels. And so it does sort of prep you to get into exercise, especially a lifting workout. And if you don't need the carb to raise your, you should always raise your blood sugar levels a little bit before exercise. It, kind, it primes your body for everything. Um, so, so the protein may do that for him. Some people prefer carb. It really is, that's a more of a personal choice. Um, what you do pre-exercise, if you are well-fed. If you're not well-fed, then typically carbohydrate is pretty important before exercise. So that, you know, again, depending on the exercise session itself, if he's working out for only an hour, it may not matter. So it sounds like what you're saying is yes, but isn't, isn't what, what Brad and Alan and the meta studies that ultimately, you know, amounts matter more than timing? Yes, exactly. Well, not with carbohydrate, right. but with protein. With carbohydrate, that, that post-exercise, so the, the, that increased rate of accretion, of, of, of absorption into the cell um, is true for carbohydrate. It is okay. not necessary for muscle growth, but it right. does matter for refueling. And that's a little bit of the glute four type stuff. Yes. Yeah. All right. So um, we, I don't know how tight your window is. I can, um, I can go a little longer. Okay. Uh, a few of these things I'm going to take the lead on because they're a little bit more fat lossy and then you can add whatever you need. Okay, Sarah's asking, I've only been through one fat loss cycle, but I noticed that it really affected my ability to keep moving. It affected my mood and I ended up making choices that made the fat loss cycle unsuccessful. Is it possible that I just need less of a cut, obviously with a bit less weight loss, but that would keep me moving? So this is one of the reasons why I wanted to take this one. Whenever you're under eating, every symptom you you mentioned happens, right? That's like normal for that instance. And so, so these people that are coaching people on these really super long dieting cycles, they're messing with more than just adherence to macros, right? You're, you're affecting the chemicals in your brain, all these different things. And so there has to be an element, right? And this, this happens a lot when people sign up to a program like ours is they, they have a weekend, they, they, they overconsume, they've been following us for some time and they realize I'm gonna do something in a reactive way, right? Rather than a proactive way. And so my argument would be if you know that going in, so it sounds like you didn't know that going in, you didn't know that about yourself, you didn't know that about all these different things, but now that I say it, you're probably going, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? Um, 
one in terms of activity you can adjust that down right um and 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 modify your your workouts but i would say the bigger factor is are you ready and it just sounds like you weren't ready right like there is an element of sacrifice and struggle when you're going to eat less and what i don't think people realize is no matter what their weight no matter what the scale says no matter what you know some idiot on the street might say or something you always have the choice on whether you should diet or not, right? But within each reform, of course, you're going to be kind of pushing that performance side. And so if you find the performance side more gratifying, stick with that as long as possible. And then you know, make the other part. But in terms of adherence, I really don't think that anyone does adherence near as well as as we do, right? So to me, you know, adherence really is the big factor. And so that comes down to you're just not ready. And because you're feeling like this weight pressure or mental pressure or something like this, you're sort of making this bad decision for yourself, right? And you could make a better decision by just saying, you know what? Like as an example, right now, me, you know, I'm probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 pounds higher than where I would maybe prefer to be and have been that for about three years, right? Because my bigger goal is to gain muscle. My bigger goal is joy and life. And I have this, you know, pretty serious process of you don't do all those things sporadically. And so that's why I have that five-year timeline is because I'm not just going to talk it. I'm also going to walk it, right? And so, you know, am I comfortable being 10 to 15? Absolutely, right? Do I like it? Would I prefer, you know, sure, you know, but, but what's that going to take? What's the sacrifice? What's the need, right? I mean, am I healthy? Yeah, I just went to the doctor, blew them away, right? And so, so, you know, that's why, you know, you say to some people, well, you know, I'm 18% body fat. You would think that you committed a crime, right? Like 18% is a sin, you know, 18% is fine for women. That would be 28%. Typically the way that like the body fat is usually about 10% difference. Uh, you know, can you be healthy at 28%? 1000%, right? Like, like a lot of this stuff when you're active, really changes things a lot. So Susan, do you have anything to add to that piece? Well, I, I think that is spot on. And, um, you know, I just have a tiny bit of nuance uh, of a, on a couple of things. Number one is uh, certain people feel, I don't know what your macro distribution is, but what we do know is that depending on your metabolism that we can, that they can look at genetically, but that, People just know if they have been on and off diets over years. Some people feel better on a little bit more carb and a little less fat. Other people feel better on a little more fat and a little less carb. Um, it doesn't mean that you're on a very low carb diet by any stretch, but that the proportions may, you may just feel better one way or the other and there's no reason to get genetic testing, you already know where, who you are with that. And people come into my practice, they can just tell me, even though they say, 
oh, where could I go to get tested? I heard about this. I'm like, you don't need to pay that. Just tell me. <laughs> um, that's one thing. The other is, as uh, Paul was saying, which is critically important, and I don't know what your body weight is, what your size is, what your goals are, or anything. But as a society for 50 years, we have put a very big emphasis on body size. And body size is not the determining factor of health. It is your physical activity. So it is very important to be physically active throughout your lifetime. We have put an overemphasis on diet and weight loss and body size because people have just assumed that, that bigger people don't exercise and won't exercise. But the data are abundantly clear that if you take overweight and obese people and you exercise them regularly and rigorously, you know, that you can do that. You can work up to pretty intense exercise that your health parameters improve far better and are, are sustained with that exercise far longer than people who are put on restrictive weight loss diets. Yet we don't talk about that. And it is a huge problem. And it is one of the reasons why I work with Paul, because I know that the mission that he has really is health focused and both mental and physical. And, and just, I, I can't reinforce enough what he's saying. If, if you're not feeling good, well, it's all about how we feel in the end. If you feel like crap, you're not gonna successfully get through your day, your relationships, your work, your, anything that you want to do. So take a step back, get back to where you feel good and then see where that takes you. Okay, um, Bonnie is asking, um, I'm currently in PR looking to do a fat loss cycle in the new year. I've been a member for over two years and I've noticed that I really struggle with adherence to my macros during fat loss. I come from a background of either great restriction or no restriction at all with eating. How can I stick to the plan better during fat loss to have a successful cutting cycle? So this is essentially the same question, right? Um, but I wanna give a little nuance because I do know a little bit more about Bonnie's situation where um, Bonnie's already fairly lean. And actually, Susan, when we did the podcast on Thursday, afterwards, we did a portion on what it takes to be super lean and whether or not that is healthy or unhealthy, right? And then kind of through some options. So you can listen to that. I'm going to give the summary, right? And the, and the way that I summarized it is that basic, or the way that I described it was that a lot of times someone who come in at 190, this was actually real world examples, right? There was a, a person that lost 35 pounds. And so we walked through the scenarios of whether or not it might be worth it to go to 120 as an example, because a lot of people view goals like that. And actually that, that was the interesting part. We can't get into that much because obviously we're a little short on time, but I think the problem that you sort of run into when you lose a lot of weight is that you get to the point where you're kind of seeing your abs and you're kind of 
you know, wondering what optimal body composition would look like. And what people don't realize is that the 90% is actually kind of easy, right? It's that next 10% that is very, very difficult. And oftentimes the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And so what I talked about was like, so the person goes from 190 to 160 and we, we factored in some buffer because she did lose 35 pounds. And I said, so a lot of times when you lose that amount of weight, and your activity starts to go up and, and just your, your neat goes up, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, you're just naturally getting up more during the day. You're a little fidgety through the day. All that stuff burns calories, right? So for a lot of people, they'll find that maintaining at 160 is actually quite easy, right? And so in the example, um, we were talking a five, six female, that's 160 that can ma- maintain their weight. So now all of a sudden they start getting into, well, what would optimal body composition be like for me? Not necessarily even in that 10 point of um, 10% range, but just getting to a point where, you know, you see a little bit more abs, you see a little bit more definition, things of this nature. There's two components, right? There's effort and then there's adherence. And the, the part that I think people struggle with, right, where we're pushing your macros and we really won't pull them down unless we're really looking at addressing an issue, right? We're very much diligent in that way. We will actually lose clients over that, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, we have to be able to be working in the one direction for the other direction to actually work. Right. And so I think a little bit of what you're talking about is readiness. But so let's say that the person wants to be at 140, but they were maintaining very easy. They were happy at 160. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you have to focus on can I put in more effort? Right. Is that going to be something that is going to take away from my life? Right. And now, all of a sudden, you have to consider whether or not you're going to be dieting more often as a result. Right. And a lot of the times going from 160 to 140, the best answer by far is to take a diet break for a year and a half, two years, similar to what you're talking about. So your readiness might be a little bit different. But if, as an example, you want to go from 160 to 140 and 160 seems really easy. Right. And now all of a sudden you do a cut three to six months later. I know this isn't your situation, but I'm just kind of addressing the the whole thing. Usually what happens in that scenario is more of a rinse and repeat thing, right? Where you only lose, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 pounds and the juice just isn't worth the squeeze. And so you find yourself in that scenario. The next scenario is going to 120. And so in that scenario, you're almost always going to be dieting more than you're not dieting right? Or you're going to be doing some extreme effort, right? Where you're ultra marathoning or, you know, and, and you see this, I, I, I was a victim to this, you know, to be really honest with you, you know, because I, I had a lot of time availability. And so more of my story was the working out three times a day, a lot of the time in the week, right? But I'm eating 5,000 calories. So in my head, I'm going, I'm eating 5,000 calories, but I'm working up these huge deficits based on 
how active I am. And it was empowering in a way, right? Because I knew I had control. And oftentimes we don't always feel completely in control with our macros and all these different types of things, but it was, you know, unhealthy on that side of things. And so I think when you're deciding how lean you, you want to be, you have to ask yourself, how much sacrifice are you willing to take, right? How much mental, I mean, the way that, that the previous person described it was perfect, right? It, it's what is this taking away from my life and, and, and why do I want this so much? That's what the bodybuilding conversation was from my perspective. It's like, what makes someone want that so much, right? And, and I think all of us are different. And like Susan was pointing out, if it's your sport, if it's your passion, things of this nature, then maybe the, the, the juice is worth the squeeze. I, I think for a, a lot of people that are just trying to get a relative amount of lean, you know, they're probably better at that 160, maybe at that 140, 120 can bring up a lot of issues. Susan, any thoughts real quick on, on well, that? Yeah, so um, again, in, in the macro distribution, just to make sure that it is favorable for you, um, because at this point, what we're looking at is, is you know, a, a restrictive diet. And so once you're on the restrictive diet regimen, you want to make sure you're still getting enough carbs so that you're feeling satisfied. I would make sure that I'm eating enough whole foods so that I've got fiber to fill me up, that you have the, you know, all the tricks. It's a lot of tricks at this point. Are you drinking enough water? I, you know, do you know to, you feel hungry, go drink more water, get out of the house, do other things. Weight loss is hard. It's just hard. You go, you know, many people, I know myself, my own experience is not bad during the day, but when I'm trying to drop weight, I go to bed and I feel hungry and it is not a good feeling. And it, it, it makes it hard to fall asleep. And if I can't sleep, I'm not gonna lose weight. So, and I'm not gonna function well. And so as, you know, as you, as you process through some things you get used to, you know, try and try, you know, we say muscle it through for a week or two, see how you feel, adjust your macros up and down within your calorie uh, allowance and see if, you know, more fat, less carb, more carb, less fat makes you feel better, makes it easier for you. Make sure you're getting in your protein. It, that's critically important also for feeling satisfied. Um, and then, um, you know, if this is causing mental distress, is getting to a specific number all that important? What really matters in life? And, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, you know, unless you're trying to get to a competitive weight that you're a lightweight rower and you won't be able to be in the boat for your race, or you're not gonna be able to lift in your, in your weight category, then what's the point? Um, you, know, what, you know, start to examine why your happiness 
And satisfaction is so tied to a, maybe a number on the scale. Well, and remember, readiness is probably the most important yes. part for you, yes. right? And you're a lifetime client. You can literally do a cut yes. anytime between now and the rest of your life, you right. know? And so, so I think that's what happens, right? Is that for most people, and, and, and I'm going to say, I know it's not specific to women, but I do feel like women feel more pressure in that regard. And I think the majority, you know, there's certainly an element of society and media and things of this nature, but I think most women put more pressure on themselves than any of those other things, mm -hmm. right? And unnecessarily so, right? Um, they're performing good in the gym, you know, they have a happy marriage, they're, all the things are going great, right? And, and but, but it's that pressure that they need to analyze of why, why is this so important to me? Like Susan's saying, like, why, why do you think this is gonna make you happy when all the evidence points out to, to the fact that, you know, the level of sacrifice required and things of this nature, more defaults to, to the opposite, right? It's, it's, it, it's not mentally proactive, right? Um, Okay, so <laughs> this is interesting. We're, we're gonna try and finish this up. If you have to leave, you just let me know and I can, can finish do one most more for sure. Yeah. Okay, so this this one's gonna be a little tricky, but, but, uh, but I wanna do the one with Meg. Okay, so here's Meg's question, which is a similar fat loss question. Uh, been a member since October, 2020, had successful fat loss cycles last year, entered PR last spring, then back into fat loss this September came out a bit early because my body was not responding well and I just and I just adjusted to the lower calories very easily. I am in AP now and gained back what little I lost in fat loss one. Planning on going into fat loss two, January 3rd, and I, I'm really nervous that my body won't respond again. Is there anything I can do to help my success this time? I do have fat to lose. So yeah, I mean I could pull up your file, but but I think I've seen pictures of you. I, I'm fairly certain that you're not morbidly obese, right? So so I mean we all have fat to lose, but you know, for you it's it's not, you know, it's not contributing to, you know, being unhealthy, right? It's really more about um, things you want at this point than things that you particularly need. Once again, I'm maybe speaking a little bit over the line, but there has to be a little bit of guesswork um, in these types of environments. I think Susan probably knows what fat loss is, um, but you probably don't know what AP is. So what AP is, is for diet adherence, we go in six week cycles, right? And then we normalize not all the way back to normal, but probably close to let's say 2000 calories for uh, female and then um, for men, we're probably 25 to 2600. Normally in performance or recomp, we would actually continue on and keep pushing, but it is that 2000 number where we start to slow things down and see how people are responding. So once again, we're, we're kind of having a similar conversation to what we had before in all the other scenarios. 
But here's what's happening in your scenario that is a little bit different and a little bit unique. Because you mentally are more comfortable at low calories, right? What you're doing is sort of painting yourself into this corner. And so there's two factors related to, to what works best, right? There is, is my metabolism expanding, right? And how much time am I putting in between those cycles, right? So you're describing a scenario where you're really not putting um, much into that, uh, much time under your belt, right? Where we're talking about at least six months, possibly into a year, possibly into something like two years. Those are where you'll see your most optimal. But what you're saying is, well, I don't feel comfortable doing that right? And you're not alone. Um, there's a lot of people in your scenario. And, and I, I, I want to say this, and I want to say this in a way that is totally respectful, right? There's no judgment I'm saying when I say this to you. I need you to know that. When you're eating less, there is less of a pressure to go to the gym. There is a less of a pressure to perform. There's less of a pressure to all to do all these different things, right? That is important for, you know, one, you know, allowing an adequate amount of food to come back. And then two, allowing, you know, you to perform better at, at those things because some of body composition is going to be a, at least eating in enough of a surplus occasionally so you can hold on to the muscle that you have and potentially build muscle as you go, right? So I think. When we talk about, well, I just feel more comfortable at low calories or when calories came back, I, you know, um, I gave, you know, back all my gains. The reason is, is because you're, you're really not allowing, you know, if food is the medicine, you're not allowing the medicine to do the work. Right. And so that's, that's part of it. You know, could it be that you're an outlier and that that, you know, you're never going to lose weight and, and things of this nature? We don't see that. Um, but what we do often see is scenarios like yours where people just, you know, they they don't allow the medicine to do the work. Right. And whether that's conscious or subconsciously, um, that could be a factor. And so. I think that you're probably not going to see great results in fat loss too, just because you know you haven't allowed the two things. You know, it, it's not just is my metabolism coming back; it's also time and effort involved with that. And that's where I say, you know, if if you know when I when I was doing my eat to perform journey. You know, I had lots of time. I was in between businesses and things of this nature. And then once Eat to Perform started, we're dealing with lawyers, doctors, and stay-at-home moms, and all these people that have all these responsibilities that don't allow them to do what I did in that moment. So whatever I did in that moment is just a version of what you're going to need to do and the compromises that you're going to make. But, you know, I still... I still question the, you know, if, if, if sometime between today and when you die, right, um, we can address fat loss, 
then what decisions would you make? What would you do? What would your activities be, right? And I think the weight loss might be playing too big a factor in this scenario. And then the other scenario is you're overreacting to weight gain. I mean, as an example, let's say that you came to us, like you said, dieting most of the time. It's going to be a little price to pay for that, right? We don't, you know, we don't say to people, hey, look, you need to eat more. You're never going to gain weight. I mean, and, 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 and some people will hear that and go, he just said, I'm going to gain weight. Not interested, right? Well, once again, you know, I can only tell the truth. <laughs> you know, I feel like my relationship with everyone has to be that transparent because everyone else is kind of doing the opposite. And just because I'm telling the truth doesn't make me wrong, right? But it may mess with your comfort level. And so I think that that's where the answer lies. But I don't think you're going to see much success in fat loss too. In fact, it's very rare for us to see someone not have success in fat loss one, and then all of a sudden bang it out in fat loss two. Usually if it does happen, they weren't adherent in fat loss one and they got serious about it in fat loss two. The problem that you run into in that scenario though, is that if only one site, I mean, we're only talking six weeks, right? And usually in those six weeks, you're able to lose eight to 10 pounds. If you're not close to that, your coach is usually talking to you about, hey, is the juice worth the squeeze here? I mean, is this, you know, and I think what's happening is, is that you're allowing fear to dominate what you know to be the right thing. Any thoughts on that, Susan? No, I think you got it covered. Okay. All right, I think we're real close to the end here. Um, yep, that, that was our last question. Yeah, so Becky, is saying to me personally that we thought you did well in PR and we did think that you would respond a little bit better to fat loss. Um, but that is often um, is often subjective, right? Because we don't know if you've been dieting since you were 12 years old. We don't know all the factors that come into play. I mean, we have a certain amount of data on you, but you know, we're not watching you from day to day. Right. Um, so, so Wendy's throwing in one last question, Susan, if you want to sign off, you're more than welcome to, I'm going to try and address this. I think, you know, we said this in the beginning, maybe not everybody was here, but what's happened is, is as we've started to talk now, all of a sudden we're getting a lot more questions. And if we could get the questions in the beginning, we, we would have been able to kind of, kind of deal with that. So I'm going to address this. If you want to stay on, you can, but um, I, I'm actually going to, I'm going to hit it. And, all right, sounds and good. it was just lovely to have all of you um, tune in. And I always enjoy these calls and always enjoy my chats with Paul. So um, happy holidays, everyone. Stay healthy. Uh, hopefully you're boosted. And, uh, and I'm sure you'll be hearing from me again soon. Thanks for being here, Susan. We really appreciate it. Bye-bye. So Carolyn, can you yep. read? I can. Wendy is really just um, um, agreeing with you. Uh, you just described me when I was in fat loss. The pressure just isn't there to perform as much as I enjoy exercise and what it does for my mental and physical health. I found myself 
using the excuse of I'm in fat loss and don't have the fuel energy to work out, but I'm in fat loss. So I don't need to work, don't need to work out. I think this is a very common mindset. So yes, and it's okay actually to modify those workouts down. And so, you know, um, we would actually almost encourage that, you know, but what I think happens in that scenario is now all of a sudden, so let's say you were going to CrossFit four to five times a week, right? And now all of a sudden you're in fat loss and your coach tells you, hey, you know, we can actually get away with, with walking. So now you move down to three times a week. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, well, I'm just moving to just walking, which once again, in the last two weeks, maybe that's fine. The problem that you run into, so, so, so while I described you perfectly, right, here's the part I didn't describe, right? is that now all of a sudden active people when they move back to getting more calories and performance and things of this nature don't bring the performance back because they found out you know what i was able to reach my goals i was able to see a lot of success and i don't have to do extreme exercise this is the problem that a lot of us run into when we choose the first thing available, right? When I walked into my CrossFit gym, the CrossFit gym that I worked out at, you know, 12 years ago, I said, oh my goodness, that's the thing I need right there. Based on almost nothing, right? I didn't know what I loved at that point. And I did love CrossFit at that point, just like I loved powerlifting before. And just like I loved multiple things, I, I, I can't say I loved running, um, but I definitely loved, um, like, I can't remember, you know, what somebody said, but it was something like, I'll believe in Santa Claus way before I believe in a runner's high. Um, I'm just going to tell you, I never got a runner's high. I did always enjoy the amount of food that I could eat um, after long endurance sessions for those people that weren't here at that time. Um, I would work out. Most days I had kind of a, a tempo run and then every Sunday I would run 20 miles, right? Um, and I did that for probably six months. And um, I definitely enjoyed that. I enjoyed knowing what I was capable of, right? But I think what, what happens, and this is why it's so important to kind of find what you love, is that when you love it, you're going to do it not because it's work, right? I think I think what you're describing is a scenario that a lot of people are trapped in, right? Is that is that the exercise that they do is more often than not, you know, kind of payment for what they eat or or earning their macros or or something of this nature, when it's really not about that at all, right? And and so when macros come back yes, your activity should go up and there's certain activities that are more preferable and, and some that aren't as preferable. Um, but in general, if there was something that was not as preferable, but it was something that the person enjoyed, you know, we're going to always say yes to that, right? Because that will take you farther. And so that's where I think happens, you know, with the less food thing. It, it really, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's every single time because, you know, but it, it's just, you know, for instance, if you're eating less 
and you're not losing weight, you can say you're broken, right? You, it's not your fault. It's, it's something else's fault, something just out there in the ether, you know? And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't outliers. Certainly we've seen a handful of those people over the years, but not more than a handful, right? More often than not, what we see is that the person just hasn't recovered, right? to the full extent of what they could. And then, you know, they do the things that they don't like or, or whatever. Um, shoot, um, we're still getting questions, guys. Okay, so I'm gonna answer this one from Allison and then we're gonna, we're gonna shut it down. But um, I, I think that when we move activity back, into PR, this why PR is uncomfortable for some people and why pushing macros ends up being uncomfortable for some people is because they're looking at it as an end to a means rather than the way their body was supposed to work all along, right? So hopefully some of that kind of resonated with your situation. Okay, Allison is asking, my fat loss cycles were more six to seven pounds of loss which I was thrilled with because I'd been at 1200 calories for almost two years and plateaued and getting depressed about it and feeling trapped. I don't think going, think going for eight to 10 pounds in fat loss cycles would be realistic for me. And to me, six to seven pounds is worth a squeeze. As Paul says, I think it's highly individual. Well, of course it's highly individual, but I'm saying in, in general, Six to seven is not something that we're going to stop, right? I mean, you're talking about more than one pound a week. So that's always going to be favorable. I'm just saying that when we base whether we should kind of cut off a fat loss cycle or move somebody to performance or something, you know, we, we, we definitely three to four, you know, or two to three or nothing, you know, um, we're going to suggest to that person that they move out. Six to seven is fine, right? But I would also say that, you know, you maybe don't know what you're capable of at this point, right? I mean, there's no reason to suggest that um, two years from now that eight to 10 would be possible, but you may find that eight to 10, that was what I was talking about in the 160, 140, 120 scenario, right? Is that it might not be worth it to you anymore. Like, I think, I think when I look at most of our clients, we give them the, the, the pass to say, you have this amazing life. Why bring in this element of stress, of discomfort, of negative mental health, if you don't need to? And then all of a sudden people go, well, why have I lifetime if I'm just gonna be comfortable with myself right now? And you did because you needed someone to help you through that, right? You needed, you know, that's the miracle of Carolyn and Becky and all the Eat to Perform coaches is that it's not so much, you know, the, the, the math. It's really the muscle in between your ears, right? That allows you to either become, and it doesn't mean that eventually you won't go, you know what? I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm a little bit looking forward to 55. I'm a little bit looking forward to, um, 
you know, getting back to a weight that I'm a little bit more comfortable at, right? But it, does that affect my happiness? I mean, it's only going to affect my happiness negatively, right? And you have to know that going in, right? You have to know. And then, you know, there's a lot of people say, well, I feel more comfortable. Is comfortable happy? You know, I would say in a lot of cases, it's not, you know, um, it's just, it's just adequate, right? It's just, you know, not pushing things hard enough, right? Not really getting a result that you want, you know, I mean, look, there's all these ideas out there and, and you may end up hearing something and trying it and this and that. Look, the science is very clear. What we do is the way to do it right? And everybody knows it. And that's the part that sort of bugs me a little bit is that there's not more truth and transparency in that regard, you know, but it's not some magical psychology. It's not, you know, doing Pilates versus, you know, weightlifting. It, it's really what, you know, kind of burns your candle, right? And it, it's really not dieting most of the time so that you can make an appropriate decision. If more people were to act rather than react, it would change the world. No joke, you know? I mean, I've said this many times. My view of dieting, my view of, of um, all of this came from my grandmother, right? Who was my most powerful female figure. Right. So if you think that your little boys aren't watching, they are right. And they're going to choose mates and they're going to make all these decisions based on those types of things. And then once I started to diet and once I started to notice the same things that was going on in my grandmother's life, that's when eat to perform happened. Right. Because I said, I have to break this cycle, you know, and so you know, I don't think I ever really got into the cycle the way that my grandmother was, but but for the good majority of her life, as I started to go into an adult, I don't think she ever ate over a thousand calories, right? And I noticed, and I noticed in a big way, you know? Um, and so I think those are all things that we have to consider as we're, you know, making these these choices of who we want to be but also why, right? You know, like I say, you know, you know, people talk about their why, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, having weight loss or, or, or happiness related to weight loss being your why is a destructive why, you know, it, it's just so harmful. I can't explain it. Right. Um, and we're already gone long, but if you can, tie some wise to, you know, a more healthy way of thinking, that's going to give you a lot, lot better result and, and, and potentially have you reach the person that you actually want to be rather than this person that you made up that you think would be happy if you had lost 30 pounds, because at the end of the day, a lot of those numbers don't mean much in terms of what actual physical and mental health look like, right? especially for a lot of you who are already some level of lean. So, um, so we'll end on that note. I appreciate every be everybody being here. And also um, thank you to 
Carolyn and Becky, and of course, Susan Kleiner. Talk to everyone later. Bye now.